All right, Matthew chapter 24. We're actually tackling seven verses tonight. Whoa. So Matthew chapter 24. And I do hope you brought your thinking caps tonight. Can I see your thinking caps? Did you bring them? Good. We're going to get very technical tonight. Um, Make something, hopefully, that's pretty complex in the scripture, simple to understand. Very important concerning the last day scenario. Father, we are grateful for your word, how it's simple enough that a child can understand, and yet so profound that it takes a lifetime to study. Lord, thank you that you give us insight and wisdom on every area of life, every one. And Lord, you give us the future. You make us aware of the days in which we live, the generation in which we live. So I pray your blessing upon this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 24 is a chapter of prophecy. Last day prophecy. And Jesus in this chapter gives signs that indicate that we're living in the last days. And we are living in the last days, in my opinion, According to these signs that we've studied out of Matthew 24, by way of summary, Jesus said in the last days there will be massive deception, lots of imposters, lots of false Christs. Jesus said there would be wars and rumors of wars. Jesus predicted in the last days that there would be cataclysmic events, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, terrors in the sky. He predicted that there would be lawlessness that would characterize the last day society. That there would be a violent hatred, special hatred and persecution targeted towards God's people. And then the only positive sign that we studied last time together, and I love this, the gospel will be preached to all nations. And that is a wonderful, wonderful Sign. Now, according to those signs, I believe that we are, in fact, living in the last days. Now, tonight, I want to talk timing. And I'm not going to make any predictions. I'm not giving a date as to when Jesus is coming back. Because the Bible says no man, no person knows the hour. So nobody, anybody who gives you a date for when Jesus is coming back, rest assured he's not coming back on that date. Nobody knows. What I want to talk about tonight is the last day timeline. This is a chart that I've been putting up several times in our study. And you've seen it. Right now we are living in the church age. The next event on the prophetic timeline is the rapture of the church. One day Jesus is going to come and call the church home. That is going to kick off a period of time known as the tribulation period. It is exactly seven years long. And it's also divided into two equal time periods. The whole seven years is known in scripture as the tribulation 
And the final three and a half years of that seven-year period is known as the Great Tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus comes again. He sets up his kingdom, a millennial reign for a thousand years, Jesus reigning over all the earth from Jerusalem, then a final judgment in the eternal state. So how do we get to that timeline? And why do we use terms like the great tribulation? Where do we get to that from the scripture? And that's what I want to talk about tonight. And it's important to understand in this last day scenario that something very significant happens there, right in the middle of the tribulation period. There's a very significant event that takes place that unlocks a lot of this timeline. And that event is what Jesus speaks about in our text tonight. So we're going to find out what this middle of tribulation sign event is according to Jesus. So now let's read. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, therefore, when you see the what? The abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then, there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So this significant event that takes place in the future seven-year tribulation period, right in the middle, Jesus refers to it as the abomination of desolation. Abomination is a word that speaks of something that is absolutely detestable, something that is disgusting, something that is loathsome. It's used in Greek to speak of a foul odor that you turn away. Just so disgusting. Have you ever opened your trash can on a hot summer day and turn away? That's an abomination. I had a roommate in college, the worst smelling tennis shoes I've ever smelled in my life. It was an abomination. It was something that you turned away from. That's the word. This sign, this abomination is going to be something that God loathes. He's disgusted by it. And the people of God will also be disgusted by it. It's the abomination of desolation, or as the NIV puts it, the abomination that causes desolation. Desolation is devastation, destruction. 
So this is an abomination that destroys. It devastates lots of people. Okay, we're also told here, it's very clear, that this abomination of desolation will be visible to everyone. In verse 15, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation is not figurative, it's literal. It's not invisible, it's visible. It's not spiritual, it's physical with spiritual characteristics to it. So understand, this isn't some figurative, weird, symbolic type of thing. Jesus said, you'll see it. And in fact, he says, you'll see it standing. Standing where? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. The holy place, what's that? Well, the whole flavor of this passage, as you can tell, is Jewish. It says, flee. Those of you in Judea, flee to the mountains. It talks about the Sabbath and all those sorts of things. This holy place is in Israel. And I think you can drill down further. It's in Jerusalem. And I think you could drill down even further. It will be located in the temple of Jerusalem. Remember when Jesus is giving this sermon, he and his disciples are looking at the temple. In Jesus' mind, the holy place was that. And I would even go further. I believe this abomination of desolation will be set up in the very holy of holies of the temple. Now, if you go to Israel today, if you go to Jerusalem, there's no temple. And that's why they're, that's a big part of the last day scenario. A temple has to be built. Because an abomination of desolation is going to stand in it one day. Now, the other characteristic about this mid-tribulation sign is that the abomination of desolation standing visibly in the Jerusalem temple is the transition to the great tribulation. That mark right in the middle that leads... I mean, look what, what Jesus says, verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation, and then at verse 21... Then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world. So this baby gets set up, and there is great tribulation. The great tribulation period will be, according to Jesus here, the worst moment in human history ever. Nothing like it before, nothing like it after. Now, I can think of some horrific things that have happened over the years. Over 60 million people killed in World War II. Or you can talk about like the Black Plague that killed one-third of the population of Europe. 10,000 people per week. The human race has seen some really bad eras. The Great Tribulation will be the worst. You look at it. Most of the book of Revelation describes what goes on during the Great Tribulation, those last three and a half years. 
over half the population of the world dies. So that's over 4 billion people will die. It will be absolutely devastating. In fact, Jesus said in verse 22, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. If it went further than three and a half years, no, no flesh would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So this sign ushers that in. And Jesus here, this text that we just read, will be extra meaningful to the people who read it when that happens. You notice it says there at the end of verse 15, whoever reads, let him understand. And what does Jesus tell to the people who are living in and around Jerusalem during this event? What does he tell them to do? Get out of Dodge. Run. Don't pack. Leave. If you're out in the field, don't go home for the clothes. Get out. Pray that it won't be during the winter. Because it's harder to travel in the winter. Pray that it won't happen on a Sabbath. Why? Because Israel shuts down on the Sabbath. It's harder to get around. By the way, back in uh, October of 1973, the Arab nations um, invaded Israel. Do you remember when they invaded Israel? On the day of Yom Kippur, a Sabbath. Because they knew everyone would be resting. October 7th was the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was another holiday as well, which was a Sabbath. The enemy knows when to attack. So, this midway point sign, an abomination of desolation visible to everyone in the Jerusalem temple, when that goes up, get out of Jerusalem because now you're headed to the great tribulation. All right, so what is it? What is the abomination of desolation? Well, for that, we're going to have to look at some other passages of prophecy in the scripture. And I want you to notice verse 15. What does Jesus say? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So Daniel the prophet spoke, prophesied about the abomination of desolation 2,600 years ago. Daniel lived 620 to about 538 B.C. He was a prophet of Israel. Remember, he lived in Babylon. At the time that Daniel prophesied, Jerusalem had been leveled, the whole city destroyed, the temple destroyed, everyone had been taken captive. When Daniel writes his prophecy, Nehemiah hasn't gone yet. Zerubbabel hasn't gone yet. Ezra, the city of Jerusalem is flattened. Daniel mentions this abomination of desolation in his book, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. 
Now, you need to understand that this is one of the most, if not the most important passage in all of Scripture concerning last day prophecy. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It's a little portion of Scripture that is referred to by Bible prophecy folks as the 70 weeks of Daniel. And in this passage, there's a time frame a clock of time that's given for the nation of Israel, and it's 70 weeks. Okay, so we're going to look at Daniel chapter 9. Look at the very first verse in 24. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. This is being told to Daniel by an angel. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So now that's pretty impressive. Seventy weeks are determined for your people, Daniel, and for your city. Who's Daniel's people? The Jewish people. What's their main city? Jerusalem. Seventy-week time period set apart for the Jewish people. Now, after those 70 weeks, at the end, transgression will be finished. Sins are at an end. Reconciliation for iniquity. The Jewish people will be saved. Sins will be forgiven. Iniquity forgiven. At the end of those 70 weeks, everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Interesting. And at the end of those 70 weeks, it'll seal up vision and prophecy. The idea is all the prophecy and all the vision concerning the nation of Israel and the plan of God will be completed by the end of these 70 weeks. And then at the end of the 70 weeks, the most holy will be anointed. And who's that? Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Okay, 70, that's a pretty key time period. Now, when you hear a week, what do you think of? How many, how many days? I mean, when we hear a week, it's, we think of a week of days, seven days. The literal term here is 77s. 70 sevens. Seventy sevens. 77 periods of time. So it doesn't have to be a week of days. In fact, in the Old Testament, it speaks quite often of a week of years. Remember when Jacob fell in love with Rachel and was going to work? How long did he work for her? Seven years, and they called a week in that text. A week of years. What happens? Does he get Rachel? Laban pulls the switcheroo, gets Leah. So he works another week, another seven years for Rachel. The, the Bible talks about how um, the, the Sabbath law of the land, work the land for six years and give it a rest the seventh year, a week of years. That's what's being used here. Four hundred and ninety years. 
490 years are appointed for the plan of God through the nation of Israel. Israel. The end of sin. Everlasting righteousness coming in. All prophecies sealed up at that point. And the Holy One is anointed. 490 years. Okay, let's look to the next verse in Daniel chapter 9. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, the wall even in troublesome times. So this is a fascinating verse because this verse tells us when the 490-year prophetic time clock starts. This is when it starts. When does it start? At the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, when does that happen? That happens after Daniel. That happens under Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 2, I'm not going to take you there, verses 1 through 6, King Artaxerxes of the Medo-Persian Empire issues forth a command that allows Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and build the walls, he's famous for the walls, but also to build the city. Now we know exactly when that date was. The first of Nisan, 445 B.C., or in the Julian calendar, March 14th, 445 B.C. When that decree went out, the 490-year clock started. Now let's go back to that verse again, 25. Look what it says. Now, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until who? Messiah the Prince... There shall be how many weeks? Seven weeks and 62. Quick, what's 62 plus 7? 69 weeks. So 69 weeks, not all 70, 69. The first 69 of 70. That clock starts, and at the end of those 69 weeks, who shows up? Messiah the Prince. So 69 weeks is 483 years, 173,880 days until Messiah. If you add 69 weeks or 483 years or 173,880 days to March 14th, 445 B.C., guess where you land? April 6, 32 A.D. And by the way, a guy named Sir Sir Robert Anderson made this famous several years ago, went through all the calculations, did the Hebrew calendar, did the Julian calendar, uh, uh, calendar, even taking into account leap years, all of these things. It works. From March 14th to 445 B.C., 483 years later, April 6, 32 A.D. Now, what's supposed to happen on April 6, 32 A.D.? Messiah 
is to be presented. And I would submit to you that that was the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in the triumphant entry. It looks right there, April 632. Absolutely incredible. The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was big deal, a big deal. That was, that was when Jesus was formally presented to the nation of Israel as their king, as their Messiah. That's when they welcomed him in. That's when he was presented. In fact, when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday... In Luke chapter 2, it says, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the language speaks of, if you would only had known your specific day, the day, if you could have done a little math, but you didn't. The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ was prophesied to the exact day by Daniel the prophet in the 70 weeks of Daniel. Okay. What happened after Jesus came in on that Palm Sunday? Did the nation of Israel receive him? No, they didn't. Israel rejected their Messiah. And verse 26 now of Daniel chapter 9 goes on to tell us what happens after that 69th week concludes. After the 62 weeks, and remember there's a seven week before it. So after the 69 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Check that out. The, the, the word for cutoff here, the idea is the Messiah will be executed like a criminal. But not for himself. What did Jesus do at the cross? He died on the cross for other people, not for himself. Jesus was killed as a common, common criminal by the Romans. After this, the crucifixion. Now, what else does that verse tell us? After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, that would be the people of the prince that would speak of the Romans, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. What happened after April 6, 32 A.D., where there was the crucifixion. And then in 70 A.D., Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. So, real important now. Listen carefully. The clock, the 490-year clock, stopped on April 6, 32 A.D., It stopped. There's still a future week. Now, why did the clock stop? Because as I mentioned, 
Israel as a state, as a nation, as represented by their leaders and their religious leaders, rejected their Messiah. And so that ushered in a long period of time that we're told over and over in the New Testament was a complete mystery to the Old Testament. The church age. Which has been going on for the last how many years? 2,000 years. The clock stopped. Because in the church age, the plan isn't with Israel or the Jew. The plan of God goes with the church. So those 490 years, if you remember, are for Israel. Not Israel and the church. Israel. Right now, God is dealing with the church. Later on, he will again deal with Israel, but right now the clock is stopped. So what about a future seven-year period still left? This amazing prophecy goes on to tell us. Then he, and this is speaking of the prince, Of the people to come, the Romans, so a lot of people believe the Antichrist is from the Roman Empire. He shall confirm a covenant with many for how many weeks? One week. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out. On the desolate. The 70th week of Daniel. A future event. A world leader is going to come on the scene and he's going to make a peace treaty. And of course, we've talked about this before. That world leader that comes on the scene is Satan's man. He's the Antichrist. He's going to come into power of the world, he'll become the power of a one world economy, a one world government, and a one world religion. And I believe he's going to become popular by instituting this peace treaty with Israel in the Middle East at the beginning of that week, that seven year period. Middle of the week, he breaks the treaty goes back on his word. In the middle of that week, the abomination of desolation is set up. There it is. That's followed by the great tribulation. And at the end of the great tribulation, there will be a consummation, a consummation where this desolate abomination will be destroyed. That's what you find in the verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9. It's an absolute incredible passage which unlocks the whole timeline. Let me show it to you in a visible way. Daniel 9, the 70 weeks. In verse 24, that's where we find out that there's going to be 70 weeks, 490 years. Verse 25 tells us about those first 69 weeks, eight 483 years, starts with that command to rebuild Jerusalem, ends 
right at Palm Sunday. Clock stops. Big parenthesis. Verse 26. Messiah cut off. Jerusalem destroyed by the Romans. Rapture of the church. Now we're gone. Clock starts again. Because now God is dealing with Israel. And at the beginning of that 70th week, there's a peace treaty that's made. It gets broken in the middle. The abomination of desolation is set up. Great tribulation. It all works. It's amazing. There's a reason. See, there's a reason we get to a chart like this. There's a reason that a lot of people in the church believe in this church age, a rapture, a future seven-year period of time for Israel, where Israel's, again, back on, this, on the plain, main plane of God. And then you see this abomination of desolation and this great tribulation. One of the things I love about this, this chart here, I like the parenthesis. Did you know that the church is one giant parenthesis? Think of it that way. Old Testament, Israel, 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 Israel. Boom, church. Which was a total mystery in the Old Testament. Nobody saw that coming. Now we're in the church age. It's a parenthesis. When the parenthesis is removed, the clocks join. And the last seven weeks go forth. Technical, but easy to understand, really, if you just think through it. All right, with all that said, what's the abomination of desolation? We haven't answered that question yet, have we? Well, for that, you have to go to some other passages. And there's a passage in Revelation chapter 13 that I've taken you before. I'm not going to have you turn there. I'll put it up, but... Revelation chapter 13 talks about this Antichrist that's coming on the scene. And you find out that he has a sidekick, a false prophet, who works with him. And the Antichrist, also known as the beast, does miracles. The false prophet does miracles. And Revelation chapter 13 also mentions where there's going to be a successful assassination attempt on this guy. He'll die. He'll seem to die. And he'll rise again and the whole world will think, wow. Well, watch this little passage right in the middle of Revelation chapter 13. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make a what? To make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. In the tribulation period, an image is going to be made, a statue, an idol, to the beast, the Antichrist. It goes on. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak 
and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So this weird image of the Antichrist that seems alive, it's animated, it speaks. And it goes on. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell except for one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name in that 666. So you have this bizarre image to the Antichrist that appears to be living by itself. It can speak and it can also you know, track down people that don't worship the beast. And it has something to do with these marks that allow you to buy and sell with the number 666. Wow. Where do you think that image is going to go? Any idea? You don't have to guess. You don't have to guess. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So, The last seven years, there's going to be a temple. And I personally believe that it's going to be a part of the uh, peace deal that the Antichrist makes, somehow solves the Middle Middle East, and that, you know, for three and a half years, this temple's being built. And then three and a half years in, the Antichrist breaks that covenant, And sets up an image of himself in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. Now, it it sounds like totally bizarre. I know you guys are thinking, James Bond movie, what are you thinking, Terry? All these different things that are going to happen. For years, for years, people would read books, you know, the book of Revelation and prophecies and think, how could any of this stuff happen? How could somebody have a mark on their hand or their, and be able to sell by that? Well, of course you can see it now, right? And what about a strange, weird, animated image? You know, there's a lot of work being done with avatars. You know how when you go online, you have your avatar? Usually it's a cartoon figure. There's a lot of work being done on avatars where they're becoming more and more lifelike. In fact, I I read of a business the other day where if you're going to die, you can create an avatar of yourself and fill it with memories, pictures, let AI do its work, So your family members will still get to talk to the avatar of you after you're gone. Isn't that weird? 
And it won't just be things that you've said in the past. AI will have learned your personality. We'll be able to predict how you react to certain questions. I mean, we're getting into some strange stuff as far as technology goes. So there's an avatar of the Antichrist in a newly constructed temple in Jerusalem. And this image is hooked up to the network where everyone buys and sells and where every I mean, it is absolutely possible. We're living in a time where something like this does not look like some far-fetched sci-fi thing. By the way, that's why they call, that's why Jesus called it an abomination. Satan's man in the Holy of Holies. You talk about a stench. You talk about blasphemy. You talk about Satan sticking it right in the eye of God. It is an abomination that brings desolation, destroys so many people. Please understand that this has always been what Satan has wanted. Did you know Satan has always wanted to be worshipped? Satan has always wanted to usurp the position of God. That's how he was fallen. That's how he fell out of heaven. That's why he was thrown out. There was pride, 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 pride found in Lucifer. Where he says, I want to be like the most high God. He was cast out. He's wanted to be worshipped by people the whole history of the human race. When he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. What does he tempt Jesus with? He says, I'll give you the whole world if you do what? But just bow down and worship. Just worship. Satan's always wanted worship. And in the tribulation day, he'll make it as blatant as possible. Come worship. But he's always wanted worship. He's the dark force behind all of the idols, all of the pagan idols, and all of the idols of religion throughout human history. Worship me, don't worship God. I believe he's us. Satan is the one who wants to get you to worship anyone but the real God or anything but the real God. Worship money, worship wealth, worship the pleasures of this world. Go all in. Because Satan knows that that leads to worship really of him. There's one true living God whom we should worship. Amen? And in fact, the first two commandments, the God of heaven and earth said, you shall have no other God before me, nor shall you make an image of me. We're to worship the one true living God. Don't fall for any of the enemy's deceitful practices. I think the best way to think of worshiping the real God is what Jesus said to the lawyer who asked him, what's the greatest commandment in the whole law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. That is what you should do with your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your service. Put him first place in your life. Everything else is an abomination. It stinks. And God wants you to worship him because he deserves it. And also because he knows if you worship false things, you'll become an abomination. We have a wonderful God who loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The one true living God created us. We fell into sin. Our relationship with him was broken. God in his love sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, the death of a condemned criminal, but not for himself, just as Daniel said 1,600 years ago in a prophecy. He died in our place. He rose again the third day. And if you put your faith and your trust in him, you'll be forgiven of all your sins. You'll become a child in the family of God. You'll become a member of the church. And you'll be raptured one day. You won't have to go through all of that tribulation. Timing. Timing is everything. Does God care about time? Does he have a plan? Man, right down to the day. He's got it all worked out. And he knows when the rapture is going to take place. We don't, but he knows. He's waiting. Where are we on this timeline? I moved a little. I think we're right there. In fact, I could almost, I'd say we're leaning against that wall. <laughs> I think we are so close to the rapture of the church. I think it could happen at any, any moment. By the way, every Christian of every generation is to live as if it could happen at any moment. I live like the rapture could happen today. Now, it may not. It may not happen in my lifetime. It may not happen in the lifetime of my kids. I don't know. But I'll tell you what, as I look around, it sure seems like it's getting pretty close to me. All of these different things that are happening. So Christian, be a good witness. Live that Christian life that you need to live in front of your friends and family members that don't know him, that don't know the Lord. Be a good witness. Be strong in your faith. And if you have not yet received Christ, do so right now. Do so right now. God does work in timing, and he gives people time. And I am convinced that he gives people all sorts of opportunities. Time and time and time and opportunities. Friends come along that tell you the truth. Circumstances happen in your life that cause you to look up and go, yeah, maybe there is a God. But do you take advantage of those opportunities? Do you respond? The Bible says, 
In an acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You know when the right time is for you to get saved? Right now. Now is the day of salvation. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Lord, we want to shine brightly for you in these last days. Lord, we're, we're excited to know that you could come at any moment, and we look forward to that. And yet it's kind of a, we're also worried about friends and family members people that we know and love. And right now is the day of salvation, Lord. Right now is the time of grace. And I pray, Lord, that you'd save our family members, our friends. And I pray that we'd be good witnesses, that you would use us to do that. Pray for anyone here who calls themselves Christian, who's playing games, draw them back to yourself in a strong way tonight. And then, Lord, I want to pray for anyone here who has not yet received you. Maybe you're here tonight. You've never received Christ. You never said yes to him. You never admitted that you're a sinner and you need to have all of your sins forgiven. Maybe you're listening online right now. Now is the time for salvation. Right now, don't wait. Ask the Lord Jesus to be your Savior. He died on the cross for you and rose again. Place your faith and trust in him. In the quiet, quietness of your heart, which is a prayer, a cry of the heart, say, Lord Jesus... I surrender, I, I bend the knee, I bow before you tonight. You're the Lord. I need you. Thank you for your love and grace and thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for me. Wash away all my sins. my Lord and be my Savior. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to be a good witness for you. Help me to grow in you. Use my life for your glory.